like most families, we have traditions that we do every year at different holidays. And one of the traditions we do uh, at Easter is we have a set of resurrection eggs. And some of you may be very familiar with those. They're this set of dozen plastic Easter eggs. Um, and each one of them contains something different. They kind of tell the story of, of Easter. And our first one, some of them start in different places, but ours starts with a donkey and the very first egg. Um, and so last night we, we did it a little different than we normally do. And uh, we took all the pieces and, and we laid them out and put them in order and and we just kind of sat down we talked about each one of them and what each one of them was and and kind of this reminder of what this whole thing is all about and and I remember sitting there last night and and, and uh, our kids were kind of putting all this together in their head and like this this was a week like all of this happened in a week, we go from last week the story that we read in, in uh, Mar- or excuse me in Matthew of Jesus riding on the back of a donkey, entering into a city, and people cheering and flooding the streets and this huge parade, everybody wanting him to be their king. And then within days of that um, that moment, he's betrayed, he's beaten, he, he's hung on a cross. People denied that they even knew him, and it all looked like it was the end until today. Until three days later when the stone was rolled away and and God showed us that death wasn't the final one, that death wasn't all that there was, that death could be and was from that moment forever defeated and victory was won. And so we're going to read this morning in Acts chapter 2 and we're going to start in verse 22, this beautiful uh, sermon that Peter preaches and he tells us about this story. He tells us about what this whole thing is about. And so if you've got your Bibles, go ahead and turn with me to Acts chapter 2. We'll start in verse 22 and uh, read down through verse 36. But in 22, uh, Luke writes this in Acts. He says, Men of Israel, listen to these words. This Jesus the Nazarene was a man pointed out to you by God with miracles, wonders, and signs that God did among you through him, just as you yourselves know. Though he was delivered up according to God's determined plan and foreknowledge, You used lawless people to nail him to the cross and kill him. God raised him up, ending the pains of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says of him, I saw the Lord ever before me because he is at my right hand. I will not be shaken Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. Moreover, my flesh will rest in hope because you will never leave me in Hades or allow your Holy One to see decay. You have revealed the paths of life to me. You have filled me with gladness in your presence. In verse 29, Peter picks it up again. He says, brothers, I can confidently say to you about the patriotic David, He is both dead and buried, and his tomb is with us this day. Since he was a prophet, he knew that God has sworn an oath to him to see one of his descendants on his throne. Seeing this in advance, he spoke concerning the resurrection of the Messiah. He was not left in Hades, and his flesh did not experience decay. God has resurrected this Jesus, and we are all witnesses of this. Therefore, since he has been exalted to the right hand of God and received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit, he has poured out what is, what is both seen and heard. For it was not David who ascended to the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord de- declared to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstools. Therefore... 
Let all the house of Israel know with certainty that God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for today. And God, as we have sung songs about this wonderful Savior we have, God, as we've sung songs about an old rugged cross that brought us salvation, that paid a debt that we owed, and God, I pray this morning, God, that you are glorified. God, that you are exalted and lifted up. God, we know positionally where you are at already this morning, God. But I pray the praise that we have done, the moments that we have together, God, just exalt you for who you are and what you've done for us. God, I pray this morning, God, wherever we are at and whatever our situation is, God, that we're reminded of the, pay, of the price you paid for us. But God, also we're reminded that the death or the sting of death holds no power over us. God, that the pain of death has been forever removed from us. God, I pray this morning that you speak. And God, I pray this morning that there are some here that may hear this story, like I said, God, for the first time. And God, I pray they find your grace and your mercy. God, for some of us, we've heard this story over and over. But God, I pray this morning that it is so fresh in our ears and our minds and our hearts, God, that we just can't help but to rejoice and be glad in this story of redemption that you have given us. God, that death is defeated and victory is declared because the stone was rolled away this morning, Father. And so, God, I pray that you speak in a mighty way. God, I pray as we've already done that we feel your presence here this morning, God, that we hear your voice speaking through your word. It's God, as we prepare to gather around this table in just a few moments, Father, God, speak to us. God, let us hear your voice and feel your grace and your presence in this moment, Father. God, let us walk out of here and sing in joyful song to you, Father. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Susan Shane is a freelance writer, and uh, she's very well published. She's been published on CNN, and uh, the New York Times has published some of her pieces. And, but since she's a freelance writer, she, like most freelance writers, is always looking to make an extra buck. And she's always looking for uh, how she can earn a little bit more money and uh, kind of supplement her income. And so a few years ago, uh, she found a way to earn some extra money. But uh, in doing so, it really kind of became a passion for her. You see, a few years ago, uh, she was grieving the loss of a loved one, and she found comfort in what she loves doing. And so that what brought her comfort was her sitting down with a notepad and just starting to write, and write stories of the loved one that she had lost. And she started to realize that, that this was the way she found comfort, but she also started to realize as she worked through this grieving process that not everybody has this ability. Not everybody has this ability to, to write and, and get these words on paper. Not everybody has this, this out for their grief like she had. And so she kind of felt brokenhearted for folks that didn't have this ability to write and put these words on paper. And so uh, uh, she began to kind of think and, and, and really... Uh, try to fit together of how can I help folks in do this and and so uh, she she kind of was heartbroken 
for families who were struggling with grief and yet still overwhelmed with all these emotions. And, and if you've ever been there and then have the, the complicated task of having to sit down and, and write someone's life story, to, to write an obituary for someone that you love and someone that you care for, and, and all these emotions and all this other stuff, and yet there's this assignment, this written assignment that's in front of you. And she said that so often people are, are just overwhelmed by emotion. They just can't find the right words to say and the right word to, to tell the story of someone life and, and and so she she hated to think of people struggling in that moment when there was so much else they could give their attention to she said the other thing she hated was looking in the newspaper and maybe trying to find her article but getting to the obituary section and reading lifeless obituaries that, that had nothing to do with a person's life and, and lifeless obituaries that, that just didn't really give you any information or detail about the person. That, that They were bland and they really honestly didn't reflect the life of the person at all. And so a few years ago, uh, Shannon became a professional obituary writer. And I honestly did not even know that was a thing. I didn't know you could hire people to do that. All right, um, Had I known, I might would have done that a long time ago. But, but she started this, uh, like I said, to, to make extra money. But then it became a passion for hers. And what she would do... And, she would listen to these people's story. And so if you wanted her to write an obituary for someone, you would call her or send her a message and she would call you back and she'd have this conversation and really just give you about 30 minutes for you to tell her stories about the person that you loved and the person that, that you were missing. And, and so she became so passionate about telling these people's story because what she said was these people that lived uh, extraordinary lives they deserve to be remembered. They deserve to have their stories passed on from one generation to the next. They, they, they live this interesting life, and people need to know about this interesting life, not in this bland, kind of plain Jane way that we often hear, but this extraordinary life that people live, it needs to be remembered. And, and Peter was definitely not a, a professional obituary writer, but he fully believed the same thing about Jesus, that his extraordinary life needed to be told, that his story Stories need to be passed down. They need to be preserved from one generation to the next generation. And so in Acts chapter 2, which is where we read from this morning, it's this very interesting passage because it happens much after Easter. A lot of people, when they come to Easter, they, they focus on the cross. They focus on the resurrection. And we're going to do that, right? But we're not necessarily going to read the story of the cross or the resurrection. We're going to read about 50 days after the resurrection, because 50 days after the resurrection, there's this gathering of the Jewish people. Uh, they, they've been doing it for, for generations. Uh, it's really a celebration. They call it the celebration of booths. And uh, it's really the celebration of the start of the wheat harvest. And so there's this Thanksgiving that God has given them a crop and they've started to harvest it. And so they give thanks to get this. They give thanks before the crop is over. We maybe should take some lessons about that. Before the harvest is done, they already thank God when they first start the harvest. So maybe we should take lessons from them about this. But they celebrate this. And so there's this huge, massive gathering of people in Jerusalem for this religious holiday, this celebration. And so in, at the, the same time, this is when God sends the Holy Spirit and the start of the Christian church. And, and so there, there are all these people in and around Jerusalem that are trying to figure out what's going on. They're trying to figure out what these disciples have been doing. They're trying to figure out how this disciple is speaking in one language, but they understand him in a different language. And they're just trying to, they're trying to wrap their head around all that's going on. And maybe some of you sitting in here this morning, maybe your church is not your thing. Maybe you just came because somebody invited you. And, and, and maybe uh, you've heard, you heard some stuff. We've sang about some stuff. You see this table, and you're just trying to wrap your head around what all of this means. And, and it's just a lot that you just can't try to figure out. 
And so that's what was happening in the city of Jerusalem, that all these people were just trying to figure out what is going on. Are these people crazy? Are they drunk? Or are they just, is it just weird? What is it that's happening? And so Peter, who kind of takes over as the leader of the disciples at this point, he steps up and he preaches this amazing sermon. In Acts chapter 2, the vast majority of, his, of Acts chapter 2 is, is just that. It is his sermon that he preaches. And with this sole idea, hey, listen, let me tell you what's going on. Let me tell you, let me explain to you what's happening and why these men are acting the way they are. In fact, they're not drunk. They're just filled with the Holy Spirit. And some of them are trying to figure out what all that is. And so Peter says, let me back it up for a little bit. Let me tell you what all this is about. And so he backs it up to the Old Testament. So he, he, he was talking to a bunch of Jewish folks, and their book was the Old Testament. He says, let me show you. And so he takes them back to the Old Testament, and he does what many preachers do in their preaching sermon. He says, here, this is the, the Bible, and then let me show you what that means. This is the Bible. Let me show you what that means. This is a scripture. Now let me show you how that was pointing to Jesus. And he does that a couple different times in this sermon. We're going to only focus on one of those times that he does that. But he really does this uh, a couple, like I said, a couple different times. This this whole passage, this whole subject, or this whole Bible has one subject, and it's Jesus. And he kind of introduces all. And then in verse twenty-two, he gets to the heart of the message. In verse twenty-two, he reminds them of this amazing life that Jesus had. In verse twenty-two, he says, "Men of Israel, listen to these words." This Jesus of the Nazarene was a man pointed out to you by God with miracles, wonders, and signs that God did among you through him just as you yourselves know. And Peter's saying, listen, you guys need to, need to listen to me. There is this amazing man named Jesus, but you already know him. You're, you already know how amazing it is. In fact, many of you are witnesses of the things he did. Many of you saw them with your own eyes. You, you, you've seen them. You just haven't put it all together. But God pointed him out. God demonstrated these amazing things that he could do in three different ways. He said first thing he did was he used miracles. Now this word that's in Greek that means or is translated miracle is often the word we use for power, right? This demonstration of authority and power like nobody else has. And so he has the power and the authority to speak to a storm and calm the winds and cause the whole sea to be calm. He has the power and the authority over demonic spirits that, that when he spoke, they followed him and they listened to exactly what he said. He has all these amazing abilities that nobody else has. But this word is not limited to just the physical things that he has and he does. You see, this word also can mean that he has moral power, that he has moral excellence. So God is attested to the fact, God has pointed out the fact that Jesus has this moral power, that he lived this morally excellent life, that he is perfect and he is morally right. There is no fault or flaw in his character, that he is spotless and he is sinless. And even at the point of his trial, when, when he was put on trial, the, the man who was in charge of his trial says, listen, you guys are going to have to do something else with this man. I can't kill this man. I find no fault in him. You see, Jesus has pointed out, or God has pointed out through to you through the life of Jesus that He is morally flawless, He is spotless, He is clean, and He only has this authority because He has the moral excellence, and no one else has this authority like Him. Everyone else has fallen short of the glory of God except Him. You see, not only does He have these miracles, but He also did wonders, and wonders are miraculous events that cause you just to kind of be left in shock. These are the things that you couldn't even imagine him being able to do. These are the stories that, that many of you know and you grew up with. And 
Some of you may not be that familiar with, but these are the stories where he's sitting on a hillside and there are 5,000 men gathered on a hillside to listen to him. That doesn't include the women and the children that were there. So probably 15, maybe 20,000 people gathered on a hillside to him. And he looks at this group of 12 men that have been following him, the disciples. And he says, about time for these guys to go eat, right? Like, it's dinner time. Let's get some food for them. And one of those disciples looks at him and says, listen, Jesus, I don't know what you're thinking, but if we had eight months worth of wages for all 12 of us, all 12 of us worked for eight months solid, we still wouldn't have enough money to pay for food for all of these people. Even, they, they wouldn't get their fill. They would get just a crumb. But even if we all worked for eight months, we wouldn't have enough money to feed all these people. And Jesus said, let me leave you in awe and wonder. Gather whatever food is in this crowd. And so they, they scoured the crowd and they said, has anybody got any food? And there was one little guy sitting over there, a little fellow. He had his lunch. He didn't eat. Maybe he was so in, in, just overwhelmed by what Jesus was saying, but he had his lunch. Five little loaves of bread and two little small fish. And Jesus said, the rest of you guys just sit down. Bring that over here. And he takes this five little loaves of bread and these two small fish and he gives things for them and he breaks them and he begins to put them in baskets. And he begins to tell the disciples, all right, this basket's full, take it to those. This basket's full, take those. And he filled those, filled those 20,000 people's stomachs. And then they had 12 baskets of food left over and all of them sat there in awe and wonder because we couldn't even imagine how we could pay for all these people to eat. And Jesus just does it. These are the wonders that leave us speechless. These are the wonders that he has the ability to do. But then he goes on and say there are also signs. And these are the marks of distinction that separate Jesus from everybody else. These are the times that he puts his divinity on display for everyone to see and witness. These are the times when he walks up to a tomb of a friend of his and he calls his name. He says, Lazarus, come out of this tomb, even though you've been dead for four days. Come out. And Lazarus walks out of a tomb four days later. This is the signs where Jesus uh, is, is standing in a house and, and people lower their friend down to him. And he tells this man who's been lowered down, who's paralyzed, he hasn't walked maybe in a really long time, maybe in his whole life. He tells him, your sins are forgiven. They're like, you can't forgive sins. He said, yeah, watch this. Let me show you. Get up and walk. And I'll show you that your sins are forgiven. And the man gets up and walks. You see, these are the signs that separate His divinity from everybody else. These are the signs that show He is divine. And He's not just like everybody else. That He has these abilities that nobody else has. And, and Peter is telling him, hey, you guys remember those stories. You saw those stories. We're sitting here reading these stories 2,000 years later. And Peter's talking to the very people. Some of them sitting in that crowd who may have been that man who got up and walked for the first time. Some of them saw him get up and walk for the first time. Some of them saw the people's eyes open. He said, listen... You guys saw this extraordinary life that he had. And, and some of you witnessed it. Some of you were the recipients of it. And, and this was amazing that you saw how God changed not only our lives, but everybody's life in this area. Jesus was no ordinary man. He lived this extraordinary life while he was here. And you know it. You see, but there's more to the story because his life isn't existing in this moment that Peter is talking about. His life was cut short. And in the prime of his life, when Jesus was about 33 years old, he was killed. And the question that everybody is wanting to know is who is responsible? Whose blood is on, or whose, whose uh, hands is Jesus' blood on? And who is responsible for ending? If he had such an extraordinary, amazing life, who in their right mind would put an end to that life? Now, I don't know about you, but when I was younger, my grandmother and my parents got me hooked on a couple of shows. 
Right? One of them was the Andy Griffith show. We had to watch Andy Griffith. Uh, and, and my kids call it the gray days, but back when, when shows were black and white, right? they just call them the gray days. And I, I wasn't old enough to, to experience the firsthand, but my, my grandma loved Andy Griffith, and, and so we had to watch it when we were with her. My parents loved Andy Griffith, so I had to watch it with him. But the other one came out a few years later. And the other one had the exact same character, but a different role. You see, Andy Griffith went from being the sheriff Andy to being, being Matlock. And the, defend, or the, the criminal defense attorney. And some of you may remember Matlock and some of you may not. But Matlock was just this criminal defense attorney. He was just this down-home country boy that everybody overlooked. And everybody thought, he's, just, he's, he's not smart enough to win any cases. But if you've ever watched Matlock, uh, the, those shows, what you saw was this kind of down-home country boy, uh, backwoods kind of lawyer that, that he really kind of focused in on details. Details that, that nobody else would, would really pay attention to. And, and what he did was he found these clues that everybody else missed. And, and usually these were the clues that would get his clients off. And when he got his client off, he got his client off because he figured out who the real killer was. And so there was usually, uh, the, the, because it was this courtroom scene, that you saw Matlock going to the crime scene and all this stuff. But then there was this courtroom drama scene that was almost the exact same in every episode. You see, he would get somebody on the witness stand. And it was somebody that was close and somebody that was grieving and all this. And, and so Matlock always kind of started with these real simple questions and, and these real kind of softball questions and, and, and kind of lured the person into trusting him and lured the, the, the jury and whoever else into trusting him. And then he started kind of building the story. Uh, and everybody kind of thought, oh, yeah, we, 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 we don't know exactly what you're doing. We don't see how this is proving the innocence of the person you're trying to defend. And so when we look at this passage of Scripture... We see in, in uh, verse 23, these are kind of the softball parts of his case, right? He, he's kind of, in verse 23, this is the easy questions and statements that he gives. In verse 23, he says, Through him, or excuse me, though he was delivered up according to God's determined plan and foreknowledge, you used lawless people to nail him to the cross and to kill him. And so at this point, everybody who's listened to him is like, yeah, those stinking Romans, we don't like them at all. We hate the Romans. You see, the way they would refer to the Romans was lawless because they didn't follow the laws of God. In fact, it wasn't just Romans. It was anybody who wasn't a Jew, anybody who was a Gentile, anybody who wasn't following the, the laws that God had prescribed to them, the Old Testament, anybody that wasn't doing they were lawless. And yeah, those Gentiles, those are the ones that killed Jesus. His blood has to be on their hands. And then all of a sudden, if you remember those shows, Matlock, he pitched those easy questions, got everybody kind of thinking one way, and then all of a sudden there was this moment where he just, bam, he laid on some evidence that just was so overwhelming. And he began to look at the, the person on the witness, and, but wasn't it you that did this? Wasn't it you that was here at this time? And wasn't it you that was found? In fact, and then he usually ended up by pointing his finger at the person, saying, but wasn't it you that actually killed him? And the witness usually broke out and confessed and, and told that they were the ones that did it. And you see, I tell you that story not to talk about Matlock, but when we get down to verse 36, is this Matlock moment in this case, this Matlock moment in this sermon that Peter's preaching. In verse 36, he turns the tables because in verse 23, everybody's looking at the Romans. Everybody's looking at these lawless people and these terrible people that occupy the city of Jerusalem and this foreign power that we, nobody likes them. And all of a sudden in verse 36, he turns the table and he points his finger at him in verse 36. He says, therefore, let all the house of Israel know with certainty that God has made this Jesus who you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. You see, what he's telling them is, listen, 
you want to point at everybody else, but the fingers need to be pointing at you. The reality is that all of us are lawless people. You may have given it to the Romans to do your dirty work for you, but you are just as guilty as they are. You're the one who, who is guilty of his, of his murder. You're the one who, who authorized his crucifixions. You see, the reality and the truth is that we are all lawless people, that all of us have turned our back on God. And so it's easy to point your finger and say, this person did that, that person did that. And so I was always reminded when I was a kid that anytime you point your finger at somebody else, there's three other fingers pointing right back at you. And what Peter is telling the crowd is, listen, you can point the finger at the Romans all day long, but what you need to remember is there's three more fingers pointing back at you. The one responsible for the death of Jesus is not the Romans, it is you. You see, the reality is it wasn't nails that held Jesus to the cross. It was love that held Jesus to the cross. It was the lawlessness of myself that put Jesus on the cross, you see that I had a debt and you had a debt that we could not pay. I had sinned and no matter how good I tried to be and you had a sin and no matter how good you tried to be, we could not get these stains of sin out of our lives. The Bible tells us that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, that, that none of us are righteous. We are all lawless people and the blood of Jesus is on all of our hands because all of us are the ones that are responsible for our sins and all of us were desperately looking for someone who could cover up and bring us forgiveness. And the only one who could was the one who was morally excellent and the morally pure in his own life. You see, there's only been one. And you know him. And you've seen him. You've seen what he's done. And it was Jesus. And so the one whose guilt is on, or the one who is guilty for his death is you and it's me. The one who is, is brought his blood is you and me. You see, we forget that the blood of Jesus is all over my hands and it's all over your hands because the only reason that he died was to pay for sins that he never committed. It was sins that I did. And sins that you did. The blood of Jesus is on our hands because it was our sins that put him on the cross. And as we're going to prepare to come to this table in just a moment, you're going to stay seated. We're going to actually going to bring this to you. But as we come to this table, this is the reminder that what brings us to this sacrifice was not the lawless Romans. It was not the lawless Israelites and the Jews. It was the lawless pastor that stands in front of you. In front of a group of lawless people who all broke God's law. And the only way back to Him was through this sacrifice. See, what we need to be reminded of in this moment was that this was our cross. And those were our nails and our thorns that He took on for us because we were the ones that owed the debt. So the Bible tells us to not take this bread and not take this cup in an unworthy manner. It doesn't mean that we're worthy of it. It just means that we simply recognize this was for us. And this is the sacrifice it took for us to be forgiven. And by putting our faith and trust in Him, it allows us to take this in a worthy manner. So what we're going to do is we're going we're gonna to have a song that plays. And it's just there's going to be a short video that, that has a song that's going. And it's simply the song, On My Cross. And for some of you, maybe this is a time of confession. For some of you, maybe this is a time just to be reminded, this was your cross. This was your body that should have been broken. This was your blood that should have been shed for your sins. But He took all of that for you because of His love for you. His blood is on your hands, and He did this because of His great love for you. And so as this song plays, I want you just to sit 
confess what you need to confess, pray what you need to pray, but just take this moment and realize that all of this was for you because you deserved all of it. You didn't earn it. You deserve the pain that he took. You deserve the punishment that he took. And after this song, our deacons are going to come. They're going to sit up front. I'm going to let you just stay seated. Um, and we'll pass, the house, pass out the bread. Um, and we'll take that together. And then we'll pass out the cup together. But in this moment, just listen to the words of this song. Think the story 
is over and the outcome is certain. There's times when even when your favorite basketball team is up by 16 points at halftime, you're like, man, we've got this game in the bag, and people start leaving the stands because you just know the game is over, only to realize that that wasn't the end of the story. After all, that the game isn't over until the final whistle blows. The game isn't over until the referees tell you it is over. And so don't leave early because the game isn't over at the end of this table. The Friday is not the end of the story. Sunday changes everything. You see, it's our sins that put him in the grave, but God brings him out again, and he robs the grave of pain and victory. And today is the day that separates the Christian faith from every other religion in the world. You see, today is the day, the fact that we celebrate not just a moral religious teacher that came and taught us some good lessons and died, it's the day is the day that we celebrate a risen Savior that is alive and defeated death and lives today. In verse 24, Peter tells us this death is not the end of the story. In verse 22, he talked about his extraordinary life. In verse 23, he talks about his death. But verse 24, he says this, God raised him up, ending the pains of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. And here's this beautiful word that he uses, this word of pains, is actually the same word that we use for birth pains. And so one author points out that the tomb was actually a womb for Jesus. He goes on to say that it wasn't possible for the chosen one of God to remain in the grips of death. The abyss could not hold him, the Redeemer, any more than a pregnant woman could hold her child in her body forever. You see, and then Peter goes on to quote, Psalm of David, Psalm 116, and he explains the significance of the resurrection. And I want to start with you in verse 27. In verse 27, we won't read the whole thing, but in verse 27, he says, But you will not leave me in Hades or allow your Holy One to see decay. And so David is writing this hundreds of years before Jesus. But what David knows is that he's not talking about himself. And Peter points this out in verse 29. He, he points out the fact that Jesus or David is talking about someone else. In verse 29, he says, Brothers, I can confidently say to you about the patriarch David, he is both both dead and buried, and his tomb is with us today. You see, the resurrection is what, is what makes Christianity different than any other religion. And Peter says, listen, David was great, and David gave us a lot of stuff. He wrote our hymn book, and we love David, and we love the fact that David was going to be our king, and one of his we love David, but guess where David is at? He's dead. He's not a living Messiah, and he's not a living Savior. He couldn't defeat death. And so as much as we love David, David was not the answer to our sin problems, and he wasn't the answer to this, he wasn't the solution we were looking for. And in fact, the same could be said about any founder of any religious system that you want to put in that place. He says, listen, we could substitute in verse 29. If you want to say that Buddha told you the way to life, then what he would tell you is, listen, I can tell you confidently, Buddha was both dead and buried, and you can go visit Buddha's grave today. Confucius is both dead and buried, and you can visit his grave today. Muhammad is both dead and, and buried, and millions of people go visit his grave every day. Joseph Smith, star of the Mormons, dead, buried. Go visit his grave. Uh, Charles Russell, the, the, the star of the Jehovah's Witnesses, dead, buried. Go visit his grave. But when you go to the grave of Jesus, it will be different. Because when you go to the grave of Jesus, he's not there he is risen and there is no body for you to see. His, his body is not there. Death could not hold Him. Hell could not contain Him. And He is risen. In verse 32, He says that Jesus has resurrected, or excuse me, God has resurrected this Jesus. And we are all witnesses of this. 
Peter says, I saw it with my own eyes. I went to the tomb that morning and I walked in. I stuck my head in there and all I saw was the clothes that were wrapped him in laying there and there was no body. I saw him days later. He showed up into a room that we thought we were hiding in. We were locked in this room. All of us disciples were terrified because we thought those lawless people who, who crucified Jesus, we thought they were coming after us. And so we hid ourselves in this room and we sheltered ourselves in this room. And guess who showed up in the room with us? This Jesus that was resurrected. I saw him. The twelve saw him. But guess what? There's over 500 witnesses who saw him. And Paul tells us later that most of them were still alive when Paul was writing. He says, you know it's true. And it changed Everything. I just told you that when Jesus died, the 12 disciples gathered in this upper room and they were terrified because they weren't going to open the door. They just knew the Romans were coming after them next. And then here's Peter, 50 days later, standing in the midst of Jerusalem, proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ, proclaiming how great this story is. You see, the resurrection of Christ changed everything for them. It's what made them go from this fear and dread of death to this wonderful confidence they have. It's what allowed them to replace their fear and pain and all of that that they were afraid of with death and replace it with something else. And he tells us three things, and I'm going to finish with these three things, that we can replace the fear and the pain of death with. The first one is confidence. He tells us in verse 25, David said to him, I saw the Lord ever before me because he is at my right hand. I will not be shaken. You see, the resurrection gives us confidence because we know that from that moment, everything he said before was true. That we know when he said, I can forgive sins and I'll prove it to you because I'll rise again on the third day. When he did it, it proved that his resurrection was true. It proved that his forgiveness was true. It proved that his sacrifice was sufficient. You see, apart from the resurrection, we would have no proof that Jesus successfully, perfectly paid for our sins. We would have no proof that we could be back with God. You see, the resurrection it was, gives us confidence and that we know we have full forgiveness, that nothing can separate us from the love of God, that no sin can ever take that away from us. You see, the resurrection gives us confidence to face any difficulty we ever had. Why? Because the biggest obstacle we've ever had, the worst enemy as humans we've ever faced is death. It is the one thing that wipes out all of humanity. It's the one thing that no one has ever conquered. It's the one thing that no one has ever defeated. And now Peter is telling you, listen, I want you to understand, I saw Jesus and I know He is with me. You see, you can worship whoever you want to, but guess what? Go visit their grave. They're still dead. And guess what? They're not going to stand beside you because they're in a grave. Jesus is different. And Peter says, listen, you can have confidence. You don't have to be shaken because He's not in the grave anymore. Guess what? He's right by your side. He is ever before you, ever with you because He is forever alive today, always, and for all of eternity. It gives you confidence. Listen, if Jesus can defeat our greatest enemy of death, He can defeat any enemy that we face. You see, when we realize that Jesus can defeat death, that it means my addiction is not too much for Him. It means my brokenness is not too much for Him. It means my marriage that has fallen apart and totally in shambles is not too much for Him. It means my grief and my despair is not too much for Him. My mental anguish is not too much for Him. My broken home, my broken marriage, my brokenness myself, all my past failures, none of them are too much for Him. Why? Because He overcame my greatest 
obstacle defeated my biggest enemy and the resurrection gives me confidence that if He can do that, there's nothing that He can't do for me. You see, and that should make us excited. That should give us a reason to replace our pain with something else. It should give us a reason to have joy and rejoice. Look back with me in verse 26 real quick. The first part of that verse. He says, Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced because I saw Him. Because I know He lives, my heart is filled with joy. And my words, my lips rejoice, my tongue rejoice. I want you to see this is inward and outward joy. This is inward joy. My heart is glad. And because it is so glad, because I've seen Him, because I'm confident in Him, because I know He lives, I can't help but to let that overflow into my tongue. I rejoice and I praise Him. And it's evidence of what's going on inside. I just cannot contain the excitement and the joy that I see and I know in the resurrection In verse 28, he says, he's revealed the paths of life to me and he's filled me with gladness in his presence. In Christ, God has revealed to us the secret or the way to eternal life. If we trust in him, we saw it at the beginning or the end of the video that we started with in John 3.16. For God loved the world in this way that he gave his one and only son so that whoever, so that anyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. You see, even death and our grief can be overcome with gladness because death is not the end. It is a doorway into a presence. It is a doorway to the eternity that we have with Him. You see, death doesn't have to be feared. Death doesn't have to be overwhelming to us. We can have confidence. We can have joy because death is the doorway to eternal life. And we can have this this joy both here and now and for all of eternity. We should have a life that's filled with joy because we get to be in His presence. We honestly should have a life filled with joy because every day should be Easter Sunday for us because every day we rejoice in His salvation because we have a God who loves us and a God who doesn't hoard judgment over us. We have a God who paid all of that for us and we should rejoice a million times over with a smile on our face and joy in our heart that we cannot contain. But there's one last thing that the resurrection gives us And that's what this world is desperately looking for. It is hope. See, the last part of verse 26 says, Moreover, my flesh rests in hope. This word hope means a joyful and confident expectation of eternal salvation. This is what Paul was writing about when he was trying to comfort people who had lost loved ones. And he tells them in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, and you've heard this at funerals in verse 13 and 14, he says, we do not want you to be uninformed brothers concerning those who are asleep so that you will not grieve like the rest who have no hope. Verse 14, since we believe that Jesus died and rose again in the same way, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep through Jesus. Did you hear what he said? Not only do we believe that he died, but we believe that he rose again. Not only do we believe that he died for our sins, but he defeated death. And there is hope for us for all of eternity to be with them uh, forever, to be with those that we love and those that we miss. There is hope for us that today is the day, but tomorrow is going to be a better day, that there is a better day and a better future awaiting every one of us who put our hope and trust in the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Paul Tripp, I'm reading one of his books called Instruments in the Redeemer's Hands. And in that book, he writes this, that people need to see the shining hope of human existence. 
It is one of our greatest needs. People can, they need to know. They can find and know and love and serve God. They can commune with Him, be with Him forever, and form a community of love that is possible in no other way. He goes on to say that we don't offer people a system. We don't offer them insight. We don't offer them religion. We don't offer them a 12-step program. We offer people a Redeemer. In His power, we find hope and, and, uh, excuse me, and help that, need, that is needed to defeat our most powerful enemies. Hope rests in the grace of the Redeemer. It is the only real means of any lasting change. Paul or Peter writes, quoting David, My soul or my flesh rest in hope because I rest in His grace. Because of the resurrection, it proves to me that everything is possible. Because of His resurrection, I don't have to hide in a room worried about what's going to happen to me tomorrow because I already know who holds tomorrow. I don't have to worry about what the end of my life is going to look like because I can face it with joy because there is hope For me, because today the tomb is empty because this God raised him from the dead. We ought to have confidence. We ought to have joy. And we ought to have a hope that this world needs. And honestly, we ought to be the witnesses to what this world is desperately seeking. And what are they seeking? Exactly what we are celebrating today. A God who loves them. A God who chased them down when they turned their back on him but a God who defeats our worst and greatest enemies. Let's pray together.